are potential PrEP candidates. So what does that actually mean in terms of numbers? What is the denominator for PrEP? So again, we said one in four sexually active HIV negative adult men who have sex with men could be PrEP candidates. That's a little bit less than, uh, than half a million men who have sex with men in the United States who could potentially benefit from PrEP. Um, an estimated one in 200 heterosexually active adults have indications for PrEP. Interestingly, the number of heterosexual women who uh, have indications for PrEP are numerically about the same as men who have sex with men who have indications for PrEP. Though the percentage is different, the numeric number is about the same. So overall, 1.2 million adults in the United States have substantial risk for acquiring HIV and could benefit from PrEP and potentially could be the people that will interrupt that cycle to not make that model of future HIV serum conversion the future. But it's not just about pre-exposure prophylaxis. So this is, as I promised, I'm going to peek into treatment as prevention for a moment. So we have really, really great data that um, treatment prevents HIV acquisition. How many of you have heard of HPTN052? It's a really catchy name. So it's, it's, a, it's a study that looked at uh, zero different couples. Um, and what they did is they started some individuals who were randomized to immediate, immediate starts to start HIV medicines right away, and the other group had a deferred start based on disease progression or guidelines. And ultimately what happened was that the group that had immediate start of antiretroviral therapy did not transmit HIV. In fact, there was a 96% reduction in HIV acquisition um, demonstrated. Now, one of the important um, comments about this is that people have a really hard time understanding probability. So my patients, when I speak to them about this, and I say the number 96% or 93%, then assume that there's a 7% risk every time they have sex of getting HIV from an HIV-positive virally suppressed partner. And that's actually not what that means. When you actually look at the stereo instructions of HBTN 052 very closely, there were actually zero transmissions between an index partner and um, their HIV-negative partner um, if the person was virally suppressed. So the reason that I cannot differentiate PrEP and TASC is because they're both very powerful interventions and treatment works to both prevent HIV progression as well as having a very high level of efficacy to prevent HIV transmission. Now, um, one of the uh, comments people often make about HPTN052 is that it focuses on heterosexually active adults only, which is why folks also talk about the partner study. And um, this study is a little bit interesting because they recruited individuals who were in zero different relationships, but this time it wasn't about getting virally suppressed, they started virally suppressed. And they actually had a high number of men who have sex with men in the study. And so what they did is followed forward to see what happened um, for virally suppressed individuals with an HIV-negative partner, and the answer was that they had numerically zero transmissions of HIV that were linked. So why then do I say linked? Link actually means that, um, that the viruses match. There were transmissions of HIV, but those transmissions actually occurred from outside the primary relationship. It was another virus from another person. So really, uh, a really important sort of comment in terms of creating a clinical strategy for people who are on treatment, um, they may not transmit to their partner, but it's really important to talk to the HIV-negative partner to see that, that their, what their relationship story is like and whether they themselves are candidates for PrEP because of potentially going outside of that very safe relationship that they have with a virally suppressed individual. And I bring this up and I show you this slide because that's what zero looks like. You see all the dots are aligned down this, this, this zero mark. That does not mean that there's a zero probability. There is always a chance you could get hit by a bus when you leave this place. Um, but the reality is that numerically people do not transmit HIV if they're virally suppressed. And so the reason that I built this up with treatment as prevention is that I think that when we look at the strategy for preventing HIV, we need to think about a combination strategy that involves both treatment and PrEP and some combination depending on what people are willing to do. And I think one of the most interesting studies that's come out recently is a Partners PrEP demonstration project. So they did something really interesting. It's a real-world demonstration project, meaning people weren't randomized. They got to pick what they wanted to do. And so um, they had some patterns of what that would look like. And so what they did is they recruited um, zero different partners, one positive and one negative. And the idea was that the positive partner, who is not starting antiretroviral therapy, would start medicines, and that the negative partner would start PrEP. 
And then what happens is they would overlap these interventions until six months of viral suppression occurred in the partner who was on antiretroviral therapy. I just want to get a nod. Are you following me so far? I know it's a lot. So after six months of viral suppression, they drop the PrEP from the person who's HIV negative in that zero different partnership. And here's what they found. Before I tell you the results, I just want to let, at least give you more details of the study. So they found that in this study, which happened mainly in Africa, that people had a very high level of retention. Um, they had a very high level of use of both pre-exposure prophylaxis and antiretroviral therapy. So 97% of candidates for PrEP started it, and 82% of them had fabulous uh, adherence, evidenced by the fact that they had tenofovir in their blood, which is awesome. Um, antiretroviral therapy, 91% initiated, and their viral load suppression was over 90%. So, wow, right? Really gr a great cohort of people who, whatever they did to support their adherence, work. Now, before I tell you the results of the study, you have to see that the study is a real-world implementation. So it's a little bit messier. It's not like one time point that starts. So there's a lot of interventions that are in there. So an important question to ask is, what percentage of the study time um, involved which intervention? So it ends up that about 20% of the follow-up time is really on PrEP alone. So it, it sort of measures what PrEP does. 33% um, measures what happens when there's overlap between PrEP and antiretroviral therapy, and about 40% is antiretroviral therapy alone. Then there's 7% that's neither, which means individuals who elected not to start pre-exposure prophylaxis or on antiretroviral therapy. And here's what the study showed. A really huge, huge level of protection. So for men, about 97% reduction in acquisition, and women, 93%. Um, they also show that in younger individuals, which has been historically the challenge, younger folks tend to do worse in these studies, and even um, high levels of uh, protection in partners who started with a pretty high viral load. So what they saw was four transmissions, but it's really important to talk about who those individuals were in that intention to treat analysis who got those transmissions. They were neither on PrEP or on antiretroviral therapy. If anybody touched any antiretrovirals in the study, there were zero transmissions. So I remember Jeremy standing on a stage saying near elimination of HIV transmission using combination therapy, combination strategies for prevention. So I sort of pose this as, as the next topic in PrEP, which is it's not just about PrEP, but about putting everything together in a way that is most appropriate for your patient scenario. So, um, again, like I said, hearing that there's a way to nearly eliminate HIV transmission is pretty exciting. Another piece of this that's exciting is it's a real-world demonstration. It's not a randomized study, so it actually is interesting that it worked in this environment. And it raises the idea that PrEP could be a bridge to viral load suppression, since we know that viral load suppression provides a very high level of uh, protection from HIV acquisition. Now we're going to bring it to Atlanta and back to the PrEP universe. So one of the things that always comes up is the question of, do people really want to start PrEP? Like, you hear this debate all over. You'll hear anecdotally, my patients don't want to do it. This person doesn't want to do it. Only these people want to do it. Well, in Atlanta, um, they did a, a, an interesting study, and I'm only going to highlight one of the features that's really, that I think is probably the most important, which is that about 50% of all of the MSM who they queried said that they would be willing to start pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it was independent of race. The reason I bring that up is that there are historically issues already happening with disparity in terms of access to pre-exposure prophylaxis. That it looks as if many of the individuals who started with medicine um, are, are white and older, um, and not all of the sort of younger, young MSM of color are potentially accessing the intervention, but they are uh, overrepresented in the HIV epidemic from the perspective of new diagnoses. So, where we're standing right now, which I have declared an emergency zone for prevention, um, your patients want to start. So what's really important is to offer them the option. By the way, one more question. Who's prescribed PrEP? All right, next time I come, that's going to be triple, all right? It's an emergency. So that's, I want to start out that conversation too. So let's, let's focus on that one. So your patients want it in Atlanta. So it's really important to offer and to screen and think about starting it. Okay, so what about PrEP in, in the United States? Where are we so far? So between 2012 and 2015, how many unique individuals have started um, um, enterocytidine to not appear for PrEP in the United States? 
So your options are under uh, 10,000, about 20K, about 50K, or over 75K. So I'm gonna switch over so you can actually answer this question. I'm kind of jealous of the hip
which is that a lot of the serial conversions, the, the very few that have been reported, kind of have an interesting pattern of serial conversion. And so you have prep patients just be cautious as you're doing their testing, that you may be seeing strange patterns of serial conversion if they're serial converting to HIV. So this person, for in, in instance, had a, a non-reactive multi-spot uh, differentiator test for several weeks. So it's really important to think about that. If you have weird findings, contact your uh, Department of Health or whoever is your uh, HIV testing authority just to make sure that you understand what's happening. So this is also a breakthrough that was with a multi-drug resistant um, um, in, um, HIV. And then finally, at CROI 2017, um, there was actually a reported case of breakthrough um, from someone in Amsterdam, and this individual um, had a breakthrough infection with a wild-type virus. And so there was a lot of controversy and a lot of conversation as to the mechanism, and it's unclear, but there was apparently a lot of mucosal damage involved and a couple of other sort of ideas about, uh, about lower levels uh, of drug and rectal mucosa. Again, this person also had a uh, atypical pattern of seroconversion, um, so it's important to think about um, HIV seroconversion in patients that you are testing on PrEP who look like their testing doesn't make a lot of sense. Definitely follow up to make sure that you have an answer. Now, I also bring this up because um, one of the things that comes up is people keep calling this PrEP failure, right? So every single one of these cases have one thing in common. They broke through, they had an infection. Again, um, they broke through tenofovir ectrocytidine. They became virally suppressed in a, a heartbeat and they stay connected to care. So the way that I like to think of it is that PrEP is actually a program, it's an intervention, and to not figure out your be as a drug. And the way that I see this, these are PrEP successes, because these individuals went up from newly infected to virally suppressed and connected to care in a heartbeat. So PrEP actually provides a delivery system of individuals who may seroconvert into care because they're familiar with the system and also they're getting tested frequently. So I like to think of these as a drug failure and not as a failure of pre-exposure prophylaxis. Okay, so speaking of controversial issues in PrEP, let's move on to SDIs. So uh, the PROUD study, who, who's heard of the PROUD study? You see, I like audience representation. So the PROUD study um, is a study in London um, that introduced PrEP at one of their big sexual health clinics, one of their STD centers. And um, the idea was that people either went on to PrEP right away or they had a deferral period. The bottom line was that individuals who had a deferral period were more likely to get HIV. In fact, the efficacy was about 86%. So that's amazing. In fact, what they found is that um, it only took 13 people to treat to prevent an HIV infection in that environment. Now, subsequent follow-up from that same clinic says that in one year, their uh, HIV is, uh, their new HIV diagnosis rate decreased by 40%. Pretty amazing. You can see what happens when you implement something when it's an emergency, you may make a change. So, the bottom line is that in a sexual health center setting, at least in London, pre-exposure prophylaxis looked to work very well to prevent HIV acquisition. Now, what's the story with STIs in that setting? So, the reality is that there were a lot of STIs in the study. So, um, about the same number in is the same number out. So, about 24, 25% of individuals were diagnosed with an STI entering the study, and about 30% of individuals were diagnosed with an STI coming out. So, overall, what we see is that among PrEP patients, um, there is a, a pretty high number of sexually transmitted infections. Um, one of the things to remember is that PrEP patients are also being screened appropriately for STIs for the first time ever in their lives. So they're getting gonorrhea and chlamydia testing at three sites if indicated. They're getting syphilis on a pretty frequent, uh, testing on a, on a pretty frequent basis. So um, there are a couple of issues that really make it harder to interpret the data. But the point is that they got STIs and had STIs, but they did not get HIV. So the Kaiser Permanente study was another real-world demonstration of PrEP rollout in a primary care clinic, so not in a sexual health environment. And um, there's some interesting data from that as well from the SCI perspective. So after 12 months of PrEP use, 50% of individuals were diagnosed with an STI, again, realizing that they're getting screened appropriately and on the correct clip. 33% um, had a rectal STI, 33% chlamydia, 28% gonorrhea, and just under 6% had syphilis. So what you would have estimated based on their sexual histories and their STI rate 
is about 8.9 per 100 person years rate is what you'd expect from HIV incidence in this population, and what they found was zero. So despite the presence of sexually transmitted infections, PrEP pre uh, tr uh, prevented transmission of HIV. So there was no, there were no numerically, there, there were no zero conversions numerically in this real world demonstration in the primary care setting. And then there's EPRGAY, which is the on-demand PrEP study. So for those of you who don't know this study, the idea is that individuals um, were randomized to start uh, PrEP on-demand. So if they were going to have sex, they took two pills, and then after they had sex, they took it for a couple of days after. CDC, New York State, New York City, everybody thinks that this is not the right way to do PrEP. The daily PrEP is the answer, so that's an important footnote. Uh, but a couple of findings from this are important, which is, again, in this cohort, there was a whole lot of STIs. So um, when you look, oops, when you look, um, both chlamydia and chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis were all scored at a high rate, and they were potentially slightly higher when the study went from a double-blind, randomized study to an open-label study. Again, these people stayed in prep care, and so they were getting frequent STI screenings that they may not have gotten in the past. Then um, Jeff Klauser and his group released a meta-analysis um, that talked about prep and STIs among MSM. So in this meta-analysis, um, they actually compared PrEP studies to other studies of MSM. Realizing that PrEP studies, um, if you are recruiting them correctly, should recruit people at very high risk for STI and HIV, potentially higher risk than some of the other MSM studies that were included in this, which may be a limitation of this analysis. Um, the bottom line is, that in this study, um, what was demonstrated was that there was a significant um, increase in um, incidence rate ratio for individuals on PrEP versus those not on PrEP of Neisseria, Chlamydia, and syphilis. And you can see those numbers in that So those ratios are here. So 25.3, 11.2, 44.6 for Neisseria, Chlamydia, and syphilis. So it appears as if, at least in this meta-analysis, that PrEP may be a risk factor for STIs. Actually, sex is a risk factor for STIs. PrEP prevents HIV. But that's what the finding was on the study. Um, and so that's, I also sort of remind you to, that that's a piece of the limit, a limit of the study, which is that it's a meta-analysis and it's, it's potentially comparing apples and oranges in lots of ways. Because you definitely want people in your PrEP study to be really very highly sexually active and potentially at high risk, which may not be the case of, of the studies that that group used to compare. Um, also, another real-world experience that happened um, is at the Fenway Clinic in Boston. Um, where they looked at their um, bacterial STI infections. Um, they found that there were a lot of bacterial STIs um, at their clinic, which is not surprising. So you can see that there was 77.1% had syphilis, 7.3% gonorrhea, and 9% had chlamydia. Um, they also saw an increase um, in these STIs, and they saw that it happened both in people living with HIV and individuals on PrEP, um, with a couple of clear associations. So the bottom line is that, um, that screening for STIs is an important part of both HIV and PrEP care. Um, and these findings aren't surprising, but there's a punchline coming soon um, from the CDC modeling study, which I'll tell you. Another takeaway message from this, however, is, and I think I've already made the comment, that PrEP is not about drugs and TAS is not about drugs. We use drugs in treatment as prevention, and we use drugs in PrEP, but PrEP and TASC are actually programs. They're primary care. They're ongoing um, services to individuals who are either on pre-exposure prophylaxis or on treatment. And so it's important to remember that it doesn't happen in isolation. So maintaining high-quality STI and sexual health care in individuals on PrEP is really what um, keeps them healthy and prevents um, other complications of these STIs. They don't get HIV if they stay on medicines. They don't transmit HIV if they're suppressed. But the bottom line is, if you think about it as a program and the fact that we need to support things like individuals, mental health, substance use, etc. It's not just about prescribing the drugs every day. Um, I also talked about that Parker study where there were zero transmissions of HIV among zero different couples and included a lot of men who have sex with men. Um, in that study as well, there were a fair number of STIs. You can see on this slide that about 16% of uh, MSM couples had an STI, um, while about 5 to 6% of, uh, of heterosexual uh, partners had STIs. So, um, so despite the fact that they had a lot of sexually transmitted infections, they didn't transmit HIV, at least within their suppressed couples. 
And so one of the points of the day is that when you think about pre-exposure prophylaxis, you shouldn't think of it as something that's antithetical to sexual health or prevention strategies. The way that I like to think about PrEP is that it's a gateway. It actually opens the door to sexual health focused care for some populations um, that have not been adequately served, such as your patients who have to travel for PrEP. They probably have never been screened adequately for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. They don't sort of have a sense of STIs. So I think that it's really critical that when you think of PrEP, it's more of a gateway to prevention than it is an enemy to STD. Um, I think that they actually go hand in hand very well. Um, so I think that when you think of PrEP, think of it as an opportunity um, to actually improve STI screening and an opportunity to risk evaluate people to see if they need to be on PrEP still. Um, there's a clear opportunity to leverage what we're doing for HIV to make sure that we're getting people who are HIV negative um, to stay that way and also prevent STI transmission between and among each other. Um, and also for women, uh, PrEP is an opportunity to talk about family planning and for men as well that may not come up in a standard way, especially given the fact that we're talking to populations that are often not the focus of contraceptive conversations or really sexual health care. So when we go out in New York City um, to promote PrEP to providers, we actually send drug reps that we fund to go into providers' offices and talk about pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, the bottom line is that when you look at our mission, when we go there, our key messages, PrEP is actually um, really low. The first and second messages are talk about sex and screen sexually active patients for STIs, since really the sexual health component is what's critical um, in delivering pre-exposure prophylaxis. And that reminds me to remind you that it's important to screen people who are on PrEP for STIs fairly frequently. Um, when you look at the CDC guidelines, um, they say that it's important to actually do testing every six months. Um, I think that those are being looked at, and one of the reasons that they are being looked at are the data that I'm going to show you now from uh, San Francisco. So in this study of individuals who are on PrEP, um, what they actually found was that if you screened them every three months, you were uh, not delaying diagnoses for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. So if you were looking at them every six months, you could have missed up to 20% of syphilis. And in places like Atlanta and in New York City, where we have a syphilis epidemic, we really don't want to miss any cases or delay diagnosis of syphilis. So um, I tend to say that it's better to screen uh, individuals on PrEP more frequently than once every six months. And our practice in New York City and our PrEP programs is to recommend um, screening every three months. Um, the alternate of uh, trying to ask for symptoms uh, doesn't work very well given the fact that you can see that all of those uh, STIs in the pie charts, the dark burgundy, are asymptomatic. So by asking for symptoms, you're only catching a small sliver of individuals with STIs. And so again, PrEP provides an opportunity for us to blend messages of sexual health. Get screened for STIs. If you're HIV positive, go on treatment. If you're HIV negative and potentially exposed, go on PrEP. And don't forget, the condoms prevent STIs and have even further protection. So this is our messaging in New York City um, that we put all over the subways and billboards and everything um, to make it clear that we're not abandoning the condom, but we actually think, just like that data showed, when you put it all together, you're going to have a higher bang for your buck. Um, and so that's, that's I think, important in the messaging to individuals who are starting to come work And so the bottom line is, we love condoms. We distribute 37.5 million of them in New York City. They prevent pregnancy, STIs, and HIV in a lot of people. But the reality is, over years and years and years, condom use has been stable, um, and it's not changing no matter how much you promote it. So what's really important is to acknowledge this and remember that there's different ways to prevent HIV other than um, the, the condoms. And the individuals who will not, cannot use a condom are exactly the people that you want to offer PrEP. And that enhanced STI intervention that you get by being on PrEP. So PrEP, it's not harm reduction. It's not harm elimination. So it's not a silver bullet that will um, address all sexual health issues. PrEP doesn't prevent pregnancy, and it doesn't prevent STIs directly. So we also know that there's a little bit of a disconnect. Historically, we think that people with STIs are more likely to acquire or transmit HIV, and really that's not what the data are showing. So treatment as prevention and PrEP actually become protective above these STIs. So I think it's really important to think about that and realize that what we're doing um, by looking at STIs is actually preventing complications of those STIs. And the message for HIV is that treatment and PrEP prevent acquisition or transmission. Seatbelts don't prevent cancer. 
they just don't. And so we shouldn't pretend that PrEP will prevent STIs or pregnancy. And so um, I like to say, however, that if you are driving your car to your colonoscopy and you've got your seatbelt on, that seatbelt may prevent cancer. So PrEP is the same. So if you are on, exactly, right? PrEP brings you to sexual care. It gets you there. And so PrEP could actually prevent HIV, prevent STIs by actually increasing early detection and treatment. So it may not prevent STIs, but it's part of the recipe for doing it. And so that's the data, that's the model that's coming out of the, of the CDC. So in a model, they actually saw that 40% uh, PrEP coverage, despite 40% risk compensation, so less condom use, um, even in that setting, you would actually see decreases in gonorrhea, chlamydia, and other STIs. Even if you doubled the condom of sex in that model, there would still be a benefit of, of STIs. So bottom line is that if you are treating individuals who are, uh, if you are, are testing individuals who are on PrEP frequently and intervening on the STIs quicker, you're going to reduce the net number of STIs in the population. So it's that seatbelt. PrEP is that seatbelt that gets you to sexual health care. And look what can happen if, if this model is correct, which I think it probably is, uh, we can actually impact the epidemics of bacterial STIs we have in the city, in, in, uh, in the country. I'm running out of time, or have run out of time, so I'll just really briefly say that uh, STIs beyond looking at individuals on PrEP are actually really significant markers of people's risk for potentially seroconverting. So when you see an HIV-negative individual with an STI, think about PrEP. In New York City, one in 42 individuals who come to our sexual health clinics when they walk in the door, MSM, they will seroconvert within a year just by the fact that they've identified themselves as, as high risk by walking in the door. One in 20 of our MSM with primary or secondary syphilis will have HIV within a year. One in 15 with anorectal chlamydia or gonorrhea will have HIV within a year. That can be interrupted. What used to happen is we would treat people for their STIs and say, come back for HIV testing. Now what we're doing is launching immediate free exposure prophylaxis once we identify an STI. So I've run out of time, so I'm not gonna to go too deeply into the, into the story of, uh, of what we're doing in New York City. But the message really is that STIs are important, uh, important markers of risk. We should use them to identify individuals who are potential PrEP candidates. And for individuals who are on PrEP, your enhanced sexual health services can change the epidemic of both HIV and STI in your jurisdiction and therefore nationally. So I'm done. I thought it was a little I just got excited. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to start off with the first question. This is a case, basically. I've interacted at the hospital with a young man who's been to a lot of prep and task sessions it made a, what to him was a completely logical decision that although he's very sexually active, he doesn't need to take PrEP because he only has sex with people who say they're undetectable. So is this an anomaly or have you seen this? And so what cogent argument do you make with it? Well, so, you know, I think we, I always sort of bring up that Parker study data, which is that you're, you're, you know, the truth is that people who are virally suppressed don't transmit HIV. Right? That is, that, we know that. Um, that's, there's a consensus statement that a lot of people have signed on to about uh, folks who are undetectable not transmitting HIV. I think it's the reality that data show it. But um, the re like, I tend to tell people that they need to think about this when they're in a sort of monogamous relationship with a virally suppressed individual they have really good communication with if they're going to elect not to use pre-exposure prophylaxis. Because having uh, condomless sex with a lot of people in the world um, who are telling you that they're virally suppressed is not the same as having an interaction with someone that you can actually talk about in detail. So I, I tend to say that um, if you are in a monogamous relationship with a virally suppressed individual, that PrEP is like a belt on top of suspenders if you're not interested in using condoms every time of that individual. If you are out in the world, a man or woman of that town, popular, um, you may not want to think about um, relying only on people's data that they report to you that you don't have a, a longitudinal relationship with. So um, I think that we see that. I think that the message of undetectable means that people are less likely to transmit is out there, but I think that it's really important to give it 
canceling, that you actually have to have some connectivity to that human rather than the We have a lot of questions, but we'll go first to the audience. David Pollack, the Anderson South Carolina. Thank you very much. That was very helpful. The, when we're going to get more information on Ryan White and or 340B money to help us to pay for this, we would love to do crap, but the guy gets funded. Yeah, I think, I think that there's a lot of there. I mean, there are so many barriers in terms of how this works, and, and from the Ryan White perspective, um, Ryan White sent out an excellent letter that said, use our testing services and early intervention services to sort of lead people in this direction. We can't use it for really doing prep. Um, so I think that there's really a, a good conversation. I'll tell you, one of the things that we're doing in New York, which is very New York specific, but we kind of are thinking our, of ourselves as a bit of a demonstration project on this, is that we've used New York City funding um, to actually hire some care coordinators who've added to Ryan White Part A contracts who are seeing HIV negative people. And so we're going to see what the outcome looks like of that. And their job is to follow up people who are on thinking about starting PrEP, who have an incident STI, or who are newly diagnosed with C. And so I think that the message that we need to diversify sort of what the vision is and make our strategy more HIV neutral rather than siloed is important because I think everyone in this room who does care will probably agree that, that the interventions that keep people living with HIV healthy are the same interventions that will keep people who are HIV negative, HIV negative. And so I think that that's really an important dialogue that requires high level advocacy. And in this environment, it's going to be tough, but I think it's worth sort of bringing that up to to the folks at HRSA and CDC. So I'm going to combine four written questions and ask you to reinforce what your answer is. I think you answered this. Got it. If the stable long-term partner is completely suppressed, is it okay to stop prep in heterosexual couples, gay couples, transgender partnerships? You know, is it okay? So trans data is a little bit there's some problems. There's not a lot of trans data. It's, I can't really 100% speak to that for sure. But from the perspective of people, um, MSM and heterosexual partners, here's what I tell my patients. So the data does demonstrate that if you're violently suppressed, you don't transmit HIV. So we know that. So I think that it's important to give patients the ability to decide what they want to do. So you know, the way that I like to say it to my folks is, some people are bungee jumpers, and some people are scared of heights, right? And so where are you on that? Do you want a belt and suspenders for viral suppression, or do you just want the belt? So um, realizing that there's very little transmission risk, if any, for someone who's virally suppressed, um, some people don't want to go on PrEP because they know that they have that protection bucket because their partner's on treatment. Um, some individuals go on PrEP because the anxiety of having sex with their HIV-positive partner is so great that it, inter it interferes with their sex life, and they're still not willing to use a condom. So what I do is present the data to patients and say, what feels right for you? Realizing that nothing in the world is zero risk. So that's the best I can answer that. Yeah. that right. question. Thank you. Um, next audience, please. Arthur Kent from Boston. Uh, Hi, Arthur. Okay. Um, I guess you can guess my question. Hepatitis C. 
So the threat of one infection can't be the reason not to prevent another one. And so I think that there is a real and honest threat of hepatitis C transmission in, in sexually active men who have sex with men. Um, I think that um, what we're counseling people is to make sure that hepatitis C screening is a piece of their sexual health strategy for individuals who are on PrEP. Um, I think that bottom line is, again, we can't really use the threat of hepatitis C as, uh, for, as like a reason to argue against an intervention that has nearly 99% efficacy in preventing HIV acquisition. So the answer is, make sure you test for hep C. Uh, and it's really important to be you know, out, up front with your patients. I think it's important to either provide them educational material or talk to them about that during, during the initiation of, uh, of PrEP, that PrEP does not protect them against bacterial STIs or hepatitis C. It also has a chance to reinforce immunization because I mean, I'm not sure um, how broadly, you know, there, there's an outbreak of hepatitis A in Western Europe. And we're starting to see some signal in New York City, and that's a vaccine-preventable disease. So beyond Hep C, you also have Hep A and B that you can intervene upon using vaccines. So it's important to sort of blend that message in sexual health. I think I answered your question. Um, next question. You presented a lot of data on STIs, but nothing on herpes. Do we know in this prep era what's going on with herpes transmission rates? Mm. Are they increased or decreased with some of these drugs? They might have better. Right. It's not so I actually don't, off the top of my head, have a really clear sense of, of population-wide transmission. Um, I know that in some states and states that have shown um, the protection from herpes, but also the high level of, of baseline herpes seropositivity at the beginning of the study. So I don't think that I have a good sense, nor do I have data that I can pull out to sort of explain any changes in herpes transmission um, related to some. And what about PrEP for STIs? You know, there were studies done back in the 90s in Africa, et cetera. Is there anything interesting going on with that? So actually, a slide that I didn't put in this was that there, there actually were data that were presented at CROI of using doxycycline uh, for uh, ST, STI PEP. So the idea that after exposure, you would start doxycycline. And, and it actually showed a fairly, uh, fairly good amount of protection against chlamydia, a little bit against syphilis, and not a lot against gonorrhea. So I think that it's a mixed bag. Uh, there's also a study that I think Jeff Klausner did looking at, at, um, at doxycycline prep um, for people who were on pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it was a very small study, but he did show some decreases in some bacterial STIs. Um, I think that really, rather than putting people on yet another pill every day, the right strategy is having a low threshold rate for them to get screened for STIs and make sure that they're staying on their STI screening schedule every three, three months, ideally, so you can have early detection and prevention. So though there are some data out there for using antibacterials um, as pre-exposure or post-exposure prophylaxis for STIs, it just seems kind of burdensome. So the next question, although it hopefully doesn't come up that often, what if you have somebody who should be on PrEP but they have a reduced creatinine clearance, do you offer them intermittent dosing of TDF-FPC, TAF-FPC, some other PrEP? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, so it's, um, so this is definitely an, uh, an off-guidelines conversation, so I'll, I'll put that as a disclaimer, <laughs> because the guidelines say creatinine clearances of 60 are there, that's a, the line. So um, I will give a story from my own practice. So I have a gentleman who um, has um, inflammatory bowel disease complicated by pulmonary uh, cirrhosis um, and nephrotic syndrome um, with a creatinine clearance of, 50, uh, of about 59. He has a lot of sex and is at risk for HIV acquisition. So um, ultimately what I did is I actually increased how frequently I monitored him and put him on, on full dose to not be retrocytomy. If you're asking me what I would do if he fell below, I would probably do a dose adjustment um, based on what we do for HIV treatment. This is off guidelines, it's a management conversation. I have a really clear conversation about that. I do not, however, recommend using uh, TAF-containing uh, TAF agents yet. We need more data on that. Really know, we don't really have data on, on TAF and prevention in real life, so I would say that for now, better to make adjustments to tenofovir than to use a drug that we have no data on. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, you, you spoke about having creative approaches to the populations that we really need to hit, these younger MSMs, minorities. Uh, can you be more specific what, the, what that might look like, especially in towns 
show a couple of slides as an example of that exact sort of how you can potentially reach a population that is hard to reach. So um, I think you should be able to see this. So we actually um, used a strategy which I think is really important in reaching uh, younger MSM of color in New York City, which is that we uh, launched our pre-exposure prophylaxis program in our sexual health clinics, where we know we find the population that no one can find because we don't have to find them, they find less. And so let me show you what I mean by that. So uh, on this slide, you can see green dots and red dots. Can you make that out? Ish. Not at all? Okay, well, you just have to believe me. So this slide shows um, where primary and secondary syphilis infections happen in New York City, where they're diagnosed. There are green dots on there and red dots on there. The green dots are our clinics, the red dots are everybody else's. What we did in the fancy analysis was we just dropped all of the men of color. And what happened was the green dots completely disappeared from the, from the screen because the uh, white men were going to other places to get their, HIV, their STI services. When we dropped the white guys out of the story, our green dots like were beacons, like big lanterns, like they popped up again. And so what we found was that by launching a program where people were coming to us, we had the opportunity to actually increase what we're doing for PrEP uptake. And though the data is pretty fresh, um, I can show you that in one, we only had PrEP in one clinic so far, and in that time, started 88 people on PrEP, and 70% of them were black and Latino, which is a lot different than the national data. So one of the pieces of advice is, where do you, does your population come to get service, and is there a way to add PrEP into that environment? So in terms of women, I think it's really important to focus on, on identifying women who potentially are PrEP candidates, and one of our strategies that may be interesting is that um, any woman who comes to our STI clinics, or sexual health clinics, who's diagnosed with, with uh, cervical gonorrhea, we are, um, and, or, sorry, cervical gonorrhea or syphilis, and who reside in areas of our jurisdiction that are high prevalence for HIV, we're offering them PrEP. And so they're coming to us for diagnosing STIs, those are biomarkers, and so we're, we're starting to use that as a way to at least offer PrEP to women as well. One of the other pieces that we're going to be doing is reaching out to OBGYNs and other uh, providers of women's health to make sure that they're aware of this intervention because we're finding that many of them are excited and willing to try this intervention because it feels like in the universe of contraception and other work they already do. So really it's a question of reaching out to where people are getting their services and adding prep there rather than recreating the women. Right. Yeah. 